Sam Patrick here. I'm so excited to share this interview with my friend Collier Landry. Fam, if you haven't yet listened to this week's episode covering a murder in Mansfield, you should probably go do that before listening to this, since the documentary tells Collier's story and sort of provides the background for all the stuff he and I are going to talk about here. But I don't know your life. If you don't want to, you don't want to. In addition to being a producer on A Murder in Mansfield and his other numerous credits as a cinematographer in the film world, Collier is also a podcaster. His first podcast, Moving Past Trauma, tells stories of those who, like him, have experienced the kind of trauma that most of us can't even imagine, but who've managed to survive and channel that trauma into something positive. Collier's newest podcast, Survivor Squad, is a collaboration with another friend of ours, Tara Newell. You'll remember Tara as the badass woman responsible for taking down the infamous Dirty John Meehan. Survivor Squad is an interview podcast where Tara and Collier speak with other survivors. I've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, and I gotta tell you, fam, it's one of my absolute favorites. Go subscribe. Oh, and just a heads up, both Collier and Tara will be joining us at ObsessFest. They'll be doing a live taping of Survivor Squad, a Q&A, a meet and greet, and you're going to see them throughout the weekend doing all kinds of other crazy kooky stuff. So come hang out with them and us in Dallas from October 20th to the 22nd. For this interview, Collier answers all of the questions Jillian and I had after covering a murder in Mansfield, and Collier fills us in on some of the details that were left out of the film. And yes, fam, we talk about the Rickenbox. All right, here we go. Hi, Collier Landry. Patrick Hines, how are you? My friend, it's so good to see you. You look so handsome on camera. Thank you so much. That's such a wonderful You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Jillian and I just watched A Murder in Mansfield. We just did our episode. The listeners will have just listened to the episode. And I'm really, like, very excited to get to talk to you about it. I'm, you know, it's... It's interesting because I've never really talked to a lot of people, hardly at all, other than on the film circuit of doing the yeah. film festivals about the film. So I'm really excited to talk about the film. Yeah. They always ask me about my story and it's like, I'm a filmmaker. Like that's wh how I even did this. You know what I mean? I love these type of interviews. Well, listen, we we have a lot of feelings about people in the documentary that we we want to get to. But first I have to ask you, where does your name come from? That's a really great question. And- Sort of the problem is, and if your audience hasn't seen it, but like, I don't get, I can't get straight answers out of my father, as you see, right? Yeah. So I don't know yeah. anything about my history. What I do know is that my mother and father always told me that it was a family name. And then some people have said there was a doctor in the family. And I remember growing up as a child, my, my mother and father had some really history. We were from Philadelphia and they had some historical documents from Philadelphia. And we had this like diploma on the wall that said, Collier Landry Boyle. Oh my and, God. And it was like from the 1800s. I, and that's all disappeared because lawyers take everything and all this stuff and uh, all my heirlooms yeah. disappeared. But it was one of those things where like, it's something that I don't really know. I asked my father about it in a couple of letters because I found Khalil Gibran's The Prophet in his stuff one time that he gave to my mother an original print. And I was like, were my parents hippies? Because- my mother told me that my name meant water boy in Welsh. And I'm a water sign, born February 28th, Pisces. Yeah. And I thought, well, could they have been? Because my mother dressed very cosmopolitan and she was very hip and very into, you know, fashion growing up and, and that type of thing. And I thought, well, maybe they were just like, this is what she chose because it had this sort of secret meaning, right? So, I, you know, I don't know. I, so the answer is, I don't know. Wow. And wait, what about your last name? So my real last name is Boyle. 
But my yeah. last name that I go by professionally is Landry, which is my middle name that I was born with. I use the name Collier Landry because my name is Collier Landry Ziegler because I was adopted. When I moved to Los Angeles, I became friends with David Geffen. And I said, hey, D, we were talking and, and I said, hey, DG, what would you do if you were me? Should I go by Ziegler or I go by Landry? And he goes, well, you're not a Jew. And I was like, yeah, like, people ask me if I'm Jewish when they see his last name. He goes, go by Landry. It sounds like Errol Flynn, which is one of his favorite actors and one of mine. Oh too, my God. So, uh, <laughs> so he's like, go by Landry. And that was the day it was 2003. And I changed, I, I started going by Collier Landry. Amazing. What the, one thing we are all dying to know, did the day that you met your dad's girlfriend, Sherry, did your father take you tanning? No, that was the second time. Okay. But but your dad took you tanning. Y yeah, but he, I didn't go tanning. He would go to the tanning site. You got to remember, this is the 80s, like the late 80s. Right. <laughs> and it's also, and you also have to remember, this is a small town in Ohio. So it yeah. was like a really big deal. You know what I mean? This Listen, is tanning was, I had like a membership to a tanning site. Jillian was, she could not believe it. That like, <laughs> like, a, like a family activity would be to go tanning. Yes. So that, yes, he, <laughs> went, he went to the tanning salon. My mother would go to the tanning salon. And he, and that's when, that was the day that I met her and she had the ring and I saw the makeup. Yeah. They gave us the remote control cars, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. So, okay. To start kind of at the beginning of the movie, some of the most like riveting moments in the movie are you as a 12 year old testifying. Do you have any memory of that? It is, it is inc it, like, it's incredible to watch. You're like the most prepared, eager witness and it's like, Jillian said that it, it felt like she was watching like a 40-year-old testify. My mother used to say he's 10 going on 40. So that's funny yeah. that you said that. So this is interesting. So for years, I never watched. I never saw the trial footage. I never saw myself. Other than if I saw it on, I, I randomly saw part of a Forensic Files episode in 2004 when it came out because I was on a date and the girl was flipping through the channels and it was me on the witness stand. And she looked at me like, oh my God. Like, uh, and I was like, mm, yeah. I didn't yeah. even know it came out. I knew they were making it. They yeah. called me to participate years before and it was on. Um, but that was the only time I'd seen it. So I didn't see any of this trial footage until I was literally sitting in the theater at our Doc NYC premiere in Chelsea. And I sat in my seat watching myself on the witnessing. It opens the film, right? Yeah. And I'm like, it's like two minutes in and I'm like, oh my God, I am, I have not changed a bit. I was, I am the same, <laughs> I am the same snarky you know, observant, you know, I like to think intelligent and good looking, but like, you know, well-spoken yes. individual. I haven't changed much, which I don't know if that, what, what that really says about me as a, you know, a, in my mid forties now, <laughs> you know, like I haven't really changed. I mean, it really is true. It really took me aback and I was really drawn in, but I was like, my God, like I have not changed at all. Was there like a ton of prep for you? Cause it seemed like you were very clear on exactly what you wanted to say. So this is this has always been a point of contention, and I was actually watching another documentary about Jesse Smollett yesterday, and they were talking about the Osin oh Dyro, wow. the Ostin Dyro brothers. So everybody said your your testimony was so was so coherent, and so this it had like you had to be coached, you had to have been coached. They told you what to say. My father sued and tried to get me to recant my testimony, and said that they had <gasps> he had. I mean, this was like after the after he was convicted and all that. It just was it was nuts for years. Yeah, and I tell this to people. I said. The easiest thing to remember is the truth. And when you're telling the truth, it's so pure it flows. The fact that anyone could think that I could remember some sort of coerced or conjured up story, I was on the witness stand 
in open court, not on a video, to in the courtroom staring down my father for two days as a 12-year-old child. Adults couldn't keep it straight if they were trying to remember something, let alone a child who would have been flustered. Yeah. And this is such a, an emotionally, the, the gravity of the situation is enormous, right? So I just literally, it, it was the truth. So that's why it comes out so purely because I'm telling the truth. Yeah, and but also like uh, like a, a, an attorney like sitting with you going over the questions you're going to be asked wouldn't be like illegal or immoral. No, 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 no. And they do do that. There is the prep of that. They're going to say this. You're going to say this. But they also, also they told me, Collier. They tried to convince me. They're like, you don't have to do this. You don't have yeah. to do this. And my response was over my dead body. Like I'm going to see this thing through because it started yeah. with me. You know, it's going to end with me. So I, wa I want to ask you about that because I, I think that you've told me separately that, and this isn't really addressed in the documentary, that initially the police didn't believe you. Like you knew that your dad had murdered your mother, but the police didn't believe you right away. Yeah. They treated it as a What is that story? Case. So what right. happened was is, so, okay, so it's December 31st, 1989. And I make, so my father leaves after, like after I confronted him, he tells me they got into a fight she got into a car, you know, he said, mommy took a little vacation call here. She got into a car at the end of the driveway in the dead of winter, you know, with no coat, no purse, no money, it left us like nonsense, right? Yeah. And I went upstairs and I had saved all my mother's friends' phone numbers. I put them in this, this Christmas like Garfield that I had in my room and I stuffed, like put it in the little hat. And my mother had just bought a cordless phone earlier, like, like a few months earlier. And I had taken that cordless phone. I got, I grabbed the list of my mother's of the numbers, and I locked myself in the bathroom. I started calling everyone, and I told them, I said, "Look, this is what happened. I need you to call the police." My father said, "I can't call the police, so you'll call the police." <laughs> yeah, and get somebody out. Like, yeah, I need you guys to do something because I can't do anything, and my grandma's going to catch me, and all hell's going to break loose. So, oh my god! Then the police came, and all hell broke loose, and my grandmother was helicoptering over me with the police, and I'm talking to him, but like literally, you're talking to well, I was 11 at the time. You're talking to yeah. a child, and I can't even, you know. I'm almost being sort of prevaricative with them because I can't really say what right, I want to say course. because my grandmother's right next to me and observing yeah. everything and she's going to tell my father. And I'm afraid, like, I'm afraid of my father. Like I grew up in fear yeah. of my father. Like this is a violent man. And I, I know what's happened and I know that I need to be the one there for my mother, whatever's going on. So, you know, I, the, the only thing I told one of the officers, I was able to pull him aside when the other officer went in the bedroom with my grandmother and I said, I don't trust my, my father as far as I could throw him because my mother used to say that to me. Yep. And he just kind of looked at me like, and I was like, you know, you got to help me out here. Right. I'm an 11-year-old kid. Jesus. You know, and it wasn't until the next day, which would have been January 1st, 1990, when Dave Messmore came to the house. And my grandmother, she was apoplectic, right? And she goes to call my father. And that's when I had, I, I knew it was my chance because I knew she was coming right back. I said, give me your card. Yep. I'm going I'm going to school tomorrow. Give me your info. Yep. And then that's when I was able to really, you know, he had come back later that night to talk to my father. You know, obviously my father wouldn't talk to him or anything. And that is when I went to school on January 2nd, 1990. That is when, I was able to, to call him. I, I go straight to the principal's office. I'm going to call this guy, get him down here. I want to talk to him. 
And I, I outlined everything for them. I, I, my, my father's proclivity for violence, the history of their marriage, Sherry, all like for the entire time that I was been alive, the whole story, yep. you know, you know me as a talker. I was a talker then too. I was a loquacious little kid. You know what I mean? I was a little, yeah. Loquacious. Loquacious. We like the words around here. At what point did they stop treating it like a missing persons case and start to believe you that this was a murder case and they needed to be looking for her not alive? So- I believe that Dave took me seriously when he came down to the school. Well, he took me seriously, obviously, because he came down to the school, right? Yeah. But he just had this hunch. And as he said in an interview, you know, he's like, that's what we call police work. You know, he had this hunch that he's like, something doesn't make sense. Like something here doesn't make sense. Like this woman just doesn't seem like she would up and leave. And this kid is very adamant about this. So I think he, I think after that initial meeting, he was like, okay, this is this kid wants to tell me something. And then when he came to the school, he was there for hours. I think then he was like, okay, there's something. Because I told him in that first meeting, I said, look, I'm going to go home. And when my grandmother's downstairs making dinner, I'm going to be upstairs and I'm going to pull the bookcases out of the wall and look in the crawl space for my mother's body in case she's been stashed. And then I'll put those back because then she won't see me. I'll be able to put it back. And then I'm going to look for her parts. I'm going to start looking for clues. I'm going to start gathering evidence for you. And that's what I did over the course of 25 days. Wow. Do you know when your father moved her body from the Mansfield home to the Erie home? So I don't know for a fact, but I would assume that that night that the murder occurred, that he had taken her downstairs and put her in probably, I I would imagine in the trunk of a car, you know, the car that he was driving. And then he he had already showered when I saw him and then he got ready and he left. So I'm assuming that she was moved that day. Yeah. Um, which would have been December 31st, 1989. And so what was the, at what point was your father then like arrested and all the rest of, you know, you go to the Rickenbox? Like how, how long does it take? Is it not until the body is found? No, it was actually the day before. So I kept gathering evidence for the police. So I was every day at school, like I knew I wasn't, I wasn't doing schoolwork. I was like doing yeah. police work and I was calling yeah. Dave Messmore. I was like, this is what I found. Cause I was observing my father like a hawk. And my father's behavior completely changed. This was a man that had a proclivity for violence who who had a who was a rageaholic. And he turned into this very like soft, like, oh, and, and it was a lot of it was, you know, mommy's left us. How we'll we'll heal. We'll wait for her to come back. What is she doing? I hope you know uh-huh. mommy's enjoying wherever she's at. She's probably shopping in Toronto. You come up with all these scenarios, and I would engage oh with them. I'd be like, "Well, maybe she God. went to Washington D.C. I'm sure there's a record of her." Oh yeah, I wonder. We should call Uncle Charlie because he works in Washington D.C. Like all these, th- just all this bullshit, yeah. right? And and then I was like noticing he would come home and he would he would be sore, so he had me rub Ben Gay on his back. I noticed marks all over his hands. So my father used to have perfectly manicured hands, and he had all these scratches and cuts and stuff, which was very odd. And I noticed yep. those and filed that. Scratches on his arm, filed that. And I would tell Dave Messmore every time I would see him because he would come home and he would be meeting with his attorney, his divorce attorney, in our like dining room like almost every night. So if he came home at all. And uh-huh. so I was just watching all of this behavior. And then he started, this is a guy who used to, who grew up calling me a little f- a little pussy. Your mother's turning you into a f- you're, um, uh, you know, you, you'll never be a man. You'll, you know, we used to play baseball and he would throw the baseball and try to hit me in the balls with it. Like he was very violent, aggressive, like to- like whatever you want to call it, toxic masculinity. He was just an asshole. Like he was just an asshole, yeah. a violent asshole, yeah. right? 
you know, and very verbally abusive. You know, he called me a stupid little fat boy because I was heavy as a child because I had asthma and I was on steroids and I couldn't, you know, I, I started becoming asthmatic when I was like nine or 10 and it, it stopped around 14. But so he was, he was very abusive to me verbally. So then to have him flip and like he saw me playing a video game and it was a, like a double dragon or something. It was a fighting. He goes, I never would have gotten this. This is violent. And I'm literally looking at him like, who are you? Like uh -huh. it's such a strange reverse in behavior. And so I would just report all this stuff. The linchpin in all of it was when I went, he asked me if I wanted to come with him to his office. He was going to grab paperwork. This is like middle of January, 1990. And he took me to his office. And on the way back home, we stopped at a gas station. And he went into the gas station to get stuff and pay for gas and everything. And I'm watching him like a hawk. And I start rummaging through his truck and I open up the center console and I find two photographs. One is of a house I've never seen before. And the second one is of his mistress, Sherry Campbell, with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. And I said, this is a new house. And this oh is something God. I've never seen before. And that's the house that I told Dave Mesmer at. And that's the house that they found her body under. Wow. So the day before they found her body, he was arrested. No, my father was arrested the morning. So what happened was, so it was middle of January. So what happened is, is around the 20th, 21st of January, my, my father is like, like I said, you know, this is three weeks after the murder. He's becoming more, he's looks like he's under more and more duress. Yeah. Because I'm observing everything. And I'm like, his behavior is so bizarre. And he says to me, he goes, Collier, you know, I know this has been really hard on you. Um, you know, with mommy leaving us and all, and it's just put you in a terrible state. It's put me in a terrible state. The family is suffering. I think it would be really great. I have a medical convention in Florida yep. coming up. I think it would be great. We'll go do a father and son trip. And first of all, we would go to medical conventions every spring in Clearwater Beach, Florida. They were in the spring. They weren't in the middle of January after Christmas vacation. Like, they're yep. designed around doctors to bring their families. You know what I mean? Yeah. As Bush Gardens, you go to the beach. It's, you know, it's a whole thing, right? So I knew right then at that moment when he told me that, I wasn't coming back from Florida. And that's when I, I called Dave Messmore and I said, this is what he told me. You got to get me out of the house. And he knew it. He was just like, oh, this is not good. And that was the impetus for getting you out. Yeah. And then on the morning of January 24th, 1990, at like 6 a.m., I woke up to two strangers from uh, Child Protective Services in my room. They said, pack a bag. You have 20 minutes you know, you're putting this pack bag. We got to get out of here. And I was like, okay. And I said, can I take my dog? And they said, oh, we'll come back for your dog. I never saw my dog again. Um, I didn't get to grab a lot of stuff. I packed stuff for my sister. And then as I'm coming down the stairs, the entire house is filled. Like my grandmother's screaming. They're handing over search warrants. Dave Messmore is there. There's men in lab coats. There's all these machines. There's cop cars. That's a whole thing. They're searching. They're executing a search warrant. And that's when I was taken to the principal of school, the Riggin Box. And I didn't go back to school that day. And then I was visited by a caseworker. Her name was Karen Jordan. And she came and she said to me, she came to the house and she introduced herself. And she's like, hi, my name is Karen Jordan. I'm, a, I'm your caseworker. And I didn't know what a caseworker was, but I was like, this is not good. I already knew that like my house was being, you know, ransacked by detectives and, and CSI unit, that this was yep. like, that, like, like it's over. You know what I mean? And that night, you know, I was there and I had left my medicine at the house. I didn't have my breathing machine or anything. I had the worst asthma attack of my life. And I honestly oh. thought I was going to die. And at that same moment that I was having this and struggling to breathe, that's when they were exhuming my mother's body from underneath <gasps> the house in Erie at the same time. Yeah. I was taken to the hospital in the morning to see a family physician friend who gave me a breathing treatment. And when I walked into the lobby of the hospital, 
there was an honor box for those that remember honor boxes with newspapers, the blue honor box, there's a bunch of people in the lobby of the hospital. And the, I was walking towards the honor box and they grabbed me and they pulled me over like to the, like to direct me over here. And, the, and after I got my breathing treatment and they gave me a steroid injection and our doctor, doctor who's a friend of the family, um, Dr. Behe, and he, he was talking to me and, you know, and then that's when Lynn Riggerbach tells me, she goes, call your Lieutenant Messmore, found your mother. And an internal pause. And, and she says, and she was dead. Uh. And, you know, the, the, it's really hard to describe the sort of like the cognitive dissonance that occurs in this type of situation. Yeah. Because part of you is relieved. You're relieved that what you thought that like you weren't being gaslit anymore. Like you, you, what you knew to be true was the truth. Then there's the flip side, Patrick, that what you knew was the truth. And yeah. that is a, that, ha, that carries its own immense gravity with it. That you're just like, the, just all the emotions come cascading down because you're feeling this relief, but you're feeling this this sorrow that you've never experienced before in your life. Yep. And you're 11. And you're 11. And you also realize that your life as you know it is over. So yeah. everything that you knew for the almost the last 12 years is done. You know, one of the people that we have the strongest reaction to in the documentary is this Lynn Rickenbach person. We are not fans and we were very upset about the idea that she brought you and your sister to her home and then only wanted to keep Elizabeth. When you, an 11-year-old who has basically solved your mother's murder and has been through this like horrendous trauma, are then displaced again. Is that, are we understanding that accurately? Is that how that went? Uh, pretty much. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and speak on this because, you know, and she's not in the documentary, by the way. You know, she... But no, just about, well, a, a person who's discussed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And of course, you know, yeah. all these people were invited to participate and no one did. And, yeah. you know, they can tell their side of the story. But so Lynn Riggenbach and her husband, Dave, would babysit my younger... My sister that my mom had gotten from Taiwan six months before the murder. Her name was Elizabeth. Yeah. And my mother was trying to help them also adopt through the same agency another baby from Taiwan, like a, like a child from Taiwan. But yeah. they really loved Elizabeth. So... They ultimately wanted custody of her. So they took me in. And then what they did, very so, okay, so here's the thing. So I wasn't in foster care initially. I was remanded to the custody of the state. I was gonna, I was staying with them temporarily for like a week because I was supposed to be taken in by either my mother's, but probably my mother's side of the family, my mother's sister. And yeah. I can remember she'd come out to visit. We talked and then she went back home and then they called me and she said, We've discussed it as a family. We can't take you in because you look like your father. No cap. That's what she said. And it was oh. actually, and I, for a long time, was like, did I really remember that right? And it was funny because I was talking about that on my podcast, Moving Past Trauma. When I first yeah. started, I was talking to somebody um, or I was describing the situation. And my cousin, who's you know five years, six years older than me, who's my mother's, my, my aunt's son, he said, I want, to, I want you to know something. I remember that conversation. And you remember it accurately. She said that. You're not imagining that. that wow. Was real, that was like a real relief too. That was like, you know, because you don't know. And, you know, and that's such a traumatic thing to have as a child. 
And my yeah. father's brother, who was like my mom's best friend, who was my godfather. So she was my godmother. She was my godfather. He's uh-huh. like, you're going to come. You're going you're gonna to rescind. You're going to say you're lying. You're making all this up. You're going to uh, do this. You're going to be punished. Like, you know, they're, they're like, you're, you put your dad in jail. And I'm, and I'm like, no. And so I, I was remanded custody to the rigging box. Because both sides of your family sort of abandoned you. Not sort of. They abandoned me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm trying to soften it for you. No, 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 no. no. And I do, and I do want to say this too. And I, and I'm going to talk about the Rick and Box, and they're not, they're terrible people. At least to, to yeah. me. Also, I, I do want to point out that like the real villain in this entire story is my father, because none of this of would have happened if my father didn't do what he he needed to do. And so, yeah, I'm always reserved with like certain narratives of it that were really horrific. But it's like, yes, all these people did really shitty things. However, yep. they would have been in that position if he hadn't done the ultimate shitty thing, the worst thing possible, which is murder my mother exactly. for no fucking reason. Yep. You know what I mean? And do it in a premeditated way. It wasn't like it was a crime of passion. He hit her. You know, he planned it <laughs> for yeah. months. So, and what they would do is they had me at their house. They were they were not nice to me. They were- The rigging box. The rigging box were not nice to me. Yep. So I was the pariah and there were things like, uh, you know, they would take food away from me. Or they would take, if I was playing with Elizabeth, they would take her to the other room to play with their son, Michael, to separate us so they could tell children's services he's separated from his sister. Now, after the trial and all of this, you know, I'm experiencing all of this, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around like, you know, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I have no one. I literally have no one. And I was, I was able to start cultivating a relationship with Dave Messmore and his wife. And I was like, I want them to adopt me. So after the trial and it was okay to like hang out with them, I spent a lot, like almost all my time there, like being a kid. They had two older kids in like high school. So I was like, oh, there's high school kids, you know, and like hanging out uh-huh. and like doing kid things and riding bikes. And it was like, I could forget about everything. Play, t- like I was able to do like the kid things that I really wanted to do, right? Because now my father had been yeah. convicted and I wanted, I'd, I'd asked them to adopt me and they filed for adoption. And then I was, a, so when it came time to award custody to me, I was awarded to the Zigglers because the judge said, there's no way I'm sending you with the, the guy that locked up your dad. And I lost my temper in the court when I left. I was so upset because I just wanted, I just, I felt like I deserved a happy ending. Of course. And I was devastated. However, I mean, I'm going to say this. I, I love the Zigglers. They are my parents. Oh, yeah. and, and I do ultimately believe that everything works out as it should. And everything did. They were... Were you living with the Zigglers at at the same time as like sort of like spending time with the Messmores? No, 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 no. This was after, this was months after. So I was in foster care for like nine, 10 months. But so you asked about the foster care situation. I was actually thinking about this like a couple of days ago. So you're like, when you have a, like when you have a kid that you're going to adopt, you know, you you spend you ease them into the family. Like you have dinner one night, they come over. Then maybe you spend a day, and then maybe you spend the weekend and all this stuff. Yeah. So we we did our first initial meeting. I was like, okay, this is super weird. I don't know these people, and um, I come back, and then it's like, okay, and now we're gonna hang out. I'm like, okay, and I'm somebody who like when I make my mind up, I make my mind up. So literally in like the second visit, like we're spending the, doing the overnights, and I said, can we just go get my stuff out of the rigging box and I just move in here? <laughs> like it was supposed to be like a month or two month long process, but I hated foster care was so yes. horrible to me. I was like, I do not give a shit what happens. Get me the fuck out of that place. 
Like, yep. I don't care. I, I'll sleep on the couch. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, obviously they weren't going to do that. You know, they, they, had, they, right, had, a, yeah, they had a yeah. room, you know what I mean? But it was just like this whole thing. And I was just like, I am done. Like, I got to get. <laughs> and I think you they like really laid out some steaks somewhere. Yeah. And they 100%. were friendly with the ring and box because, they, because she was a principal of the school. George was president of the school board. So they had a relationship and they were friendly. And then they started turning on the Zigglers. And then they started seeing that whole thing. So it's, you know, it was a mess, man. And then they uh, yeah. and then they kept me from seeing my sister. They let me see her once. Then they said that I need to have supervised visits with her. So the last time I saw her was like in January of 1991. And I never saw her again. They wouldn't let me have so, contact with her or anything. That was my next question was, so you said in, now, Elizabeth had been with your family for six months. Yes. And then before the murder. And then, you know, over the years, th- like this is where Julian and I were, were struggling to understand a little bit. So- Lynn Rickenbach is the principal of your school. You're now living with the Zigglers. Are you still going to the school where she is the principal? I am. And so they stopped letting me see my sister. And my mother, the year before, had had buttons made of all of us with her face on it, and then my sister, and then me. So I started wearing the buttons of my sister and my mom to school on my shirt. And that oh caused God. a whole thing. And then the Zigglers got upset with me for provoking everyone because they thought it was my fault because that's the thing is, is the unfortunate thing is when you're going through trauma or when you're through this, when any little thing happens, they, they think it's because of the trauma, not because of something else. Right. So they're first like, like, why did you do that? That you're, you're doing this. And then, and the ring box came over and they're shaming me in front of them. And you're, you're doing this to antagonize us. And I'm like, I'm just wearing some buttons with my mom. And then the Zigglers started seeing how the how the ring and box were behaving. And then they're like, oh, these people are assholes. Uh-huh. They're like, pull the wool over our eyes. And w- I never saw them again. Like, I remember like growing up, we were in a Walmart one time and they were in line and they ran out of the store. It was like <sighs> the weirdest. It was like so weird. It's like, are you serious? And they kept my sister. And I, I ended up finding out later, they kept... My adopted sister, Elizabeth, they changed her name to Caitlin, but she lived in the same town, like, you know, one town over, but it's like, you know, Chelsea to, I don't know what, I'm trying to think of. (laughs) Uh, So like Chelsea to Soho, you know what I mean? It's like super close, right? Just LA to Glendale, you know? So, and they kept her and and I had friends that were teachers of mine that had kids in the same school system. And they told me later on, they said, they used to drive her separately for tennis practice. She never rode the team bus. She always drove. So they kept her isolated from people because they didn't want anyone to like talk to her about the situation or whatever, which is like, you're a Chinese girl in this town that this is the largest murder trial in Ohio history happens in this yeah. town of like 30,000 people, maybe. Yeah. And you're Chinese. I mean, look, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to say anything, but I would think it would be better to just be open about it. Because I used to work with kids in adoption groups when I was a teenager. I would go to those groups because I would see the destruction of like how they would find out they were adopted. They go off the rails. They get into like juvie hall or whatever. And I would go there to be like a mentor. Also to like for myself, but because then I would come in the room, they'd be like, okay, we got nothing to complain about. This guy's here. Okay, call your- Uh (laughs) It was actually really cool. And it was like my first, the first time that I realized at a young age that my story had a positive, I could use my story for a positive impact with people. And so I would see how these kids were scarred. And I always thought back in my mind, like what happens when this bomb drops on them? You yeah. Know, of like, this is like, not only are you adopted, which she's going to figure out because she doesn't look like them, but also like all the stuff we said about your, like, it's all a lie. This is what it is. And you know, <laughs> it's out there in the world. Yeah. So 
all of these years, you guys are living in towns like neighboring each other. You never, you have no contact. You don't see her. In the documentary, one of the most heartbreaking, the, the two most, well, many heartbreaking moments. But I think about like you leaving a voicemail for her and then like later leaving a voicemail for, I think it's your aunt on your mom's side. Do you, like, you know, the movie was a while back. Have you had any contact with Elizabeth slash Caitlin since then? None. None. And how did you get her like contact information? How do you have her number? Oh, I think they pulled it off of what are you Nexus Lexus or whatever like the search they searched yeah. that thing. I, I had I had had numbers before, and we just tried them all or whatever. Yeah, we just you know, did the you know extensive database search, and you know. I mean, like, did you ever look for her on Facebook or you know like? Uh huh. Over the years, I did, and um, I saw she had a profile that it got deleted. I think she might have a LinkedIn now, but she's a ghost and. Look, I mean, I'm not here to interfere with the family dynamics. You know what I mean? Yeah, of but, course. But my but my story is true. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? this of is course, of course. This is what, what happened. About, what about your your extended family? So, like your aunt on your mom's side and your uncle on your dad's side. Did, did are they just gone too? Yeah. So I think that my I tried to like in that conversation when I mentioned earlier about my cousin speaking to me. I was trying to say to him, like, can I talk to my aunt? And he's like, I don't think that's a good idea. And he's like, well, maybe I'll talk. And then he's like, she doesn't want to talk to you. And your and your other cousin doesn't want to talk to you. And my one of my you Jesus. Know, and as you know, in the documentary, like not only am I confronting my father about the murder, but I'm confronting him about him molesting my two cousins on my mother's yeah. side, who are their daughters. And my father was going to be arrested for that crime in 80, 1988, a year before he murdered my mother. And the girls couldn't bring it to themselves to like give formal testimony and give a statement, like give a, like a formal statement so they could secure an indictment, you know, and an yeah. arrest warrant. And, um, which is not their fault. Like they're kids. Of course. We, we talk about this for five minutes in the episode. We're like, why, why does that have to happen? Why can't kids just tell the judge? Why does it, why do kids have to testify in open court and face their accusers? It makes no sense. Well, uh, well, this was a willing kid. Like there was no yeah. way that like they tried to say you can do it. We could do a videotape. We could do this. I was like, I'm no, like I didn't know the word fuck, but like, fuck you. I'm going in there. Yeah. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to stare at him and see if he looks back at me. I'm putting but I mean like your prison. cousins and the, the sexual no, so, abuse. So the sexual abuse thing is like, so I understand. So, you know, and unfortunately my cousin took her life in 2017. Oh and She my had a lot God. of problems. She had a lot of problems of supposedly, but I'm sure this didn't help. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to get to like your dad. You know, the the thing about the documentary, which is so well made, is it's kind of all leading up to the confrontation you have with your dad in the prison towards the end. And, you know, we were curious about like, had you visited with your dad often over the years or was this like a very rare occasion? So... This is what I think is the most interesting part of the entire story <laughs> is the process of making this film. So, and I'm going to just, let me just sort of put this together for you. So I drop out of music school two and a half years in, I'm going to Oberlin Conservatory for voice. I drop out, I move to Los Angeles because I'm like, I've got to do something with this story and I, and I want to make a career as an artist. I come out here with two grand in my pocket. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to figure it out, right? And I slowly, you know, I, I work as a model. I do some music stuff. I do some acting stuff, but I really have this passion for the story and I become a filmmaker because I have to do something with this story. And in the process of all this, so I have a relationship with my father and I started seeing my father like right after he went to prison, you know, and I would see him. And I saw him a couple of times. And then after, once I turned 18, I went to a high university uh, school of music and he was at Lucasville, which was really close. And I would talk to him on the phone and we would exchange letters. Obviously, you see in the film, there's letters that would yeah. go in and he would mostly to me. 
And my adoptive parents would always open those beforehand to make sure and to you know show he's manipulating. Like just we want to make sure everything's okay. So, so I, I started going to see him because I had this dream. My mother came to me. She's like, "You need to forgive your father. You need to move on with your life because this only affects you." Like this whole thing, right? Yeah. And I'm like, and I and I wasn't like an angry person. I was angry at him for what he did, but I was also really angry at like him for just being that fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like you had no reason to do this. Like, why did you fuck your life up? Like, if you, why would you do that? Like, you yeah. destroyed so many people's lives. Which I was so impassioned. And I was so, when I grew up, I, I was no, I stayed in the same small town. Everyone knew me as that kid, right? Even, you know, the, the Boyle child and all this stuff, even though I was junior and senior class president, I was the choir, high school choir star. I was captain of the tennis team. I had two jobs. I, you know, I was very socially active and involved in everything. And, but I realized like, I will never get out of this. I will always be known as this person. So that's why yeah. I wanted to go to a place where no one knows me. I was either going to go to New York or I was going to go to LA. But I, a friend of mine had convinced me, like a music teacher I was studying with, he, he had sung with the Metropolitan Opera Course and he convinced me to go to college. He's like, you just go for a couple of years. And I was like, okay, can I get into, a, do music? And then he was like, yeah. And I auditioned, I got it. Anyways, this whole thing. But I come, <laughs> but I come to Los Angeles, but I know you have a musical theater background. We appreciate these oh, Well, things. and also the show Choir Moment in the documentary is one of my favorites. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's the worst footage <laughs> of me singing too. I'm like, where did they get this? This is horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. But anyways, and I also want to make a note too, like I'm, it's so funny because I wasn't supposed to really be in the documentary. It was originally, I was going to be shooting it. You'd see me a little bit. I'd be interviewed or whatever. And then it, we called an audible at the last minute. So back to what we were talking about with my father. So yeah. I cultivated a relationship with him for years. And I started going back to Ohio when I could afford to go back in like two, mid 2000s. And I would always make an effort to go down and see him. And he was at that time incarcerated in Marion Correctional Institution. And Marion is one of the most progressive prisons on the fucking planet. If not, you know, you know, definitely in the United States. They have like seven. That, that was the one where you see him in the end, right? Correct. Because we were very much like the way they were very concerned about his mental health after the conversation with you. Like that was a powerful moment about like, wait, wait a second. Oh yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you how all this unfolds. So in 20, so I'm working as a filmmaker now. This is like 2013, 2014. I'm going to see my father when I go come home, you know, once or twice a year. You know, I make a I make an effort to see him as much as I can. I've talked to him on the phone, I'm trading letters or whatever, because I'm always in the back of my mind, like I'm going to do something with this story, and you're participating, whether you know it or yep. not. Yeah. So I'm just building as a as a filmmaker does, as a storyteller. And you know, I had met a friend of mine, John Morrissey. So I saw a film when I moved to LA called American History X, uh -huh. and that film to me, it, it, it's one of my favorite films of all time. I think it's one of the best pieces of American cinema in the last 25 years. It literally, it, it struck such a chord with me because I was like, whoever made that film understands the consequences of violence. Flash forward eight years, nine years later, my girlfriend comes to me and she says, this movie producer wants to photograph her for a book. She starts rattling off these films. He did Booty Call, Havoc, 1114, uh, and American History. So I was like, American History X? Um, I was like, get him over here. John and I become friends. We're still friends to this day. After a couple of years, you know, everyone in LA knew this about me. Collier's from Ohio. His dad killed his mom and he grew up in foster care. He was adopted. That was pretty much it. Unless you were like really mm -hmm. close friend, but I didn't really burden people with the story, you know? And yeah. certainly not to the extent that it's out there now. Because uh, I didn't want to be known for that, right? I wanted people to like, hey, we really like Collier. Great, you like me for me. Or, or you yeah. think I'm an asshole? Great, I've earned the asshole. You, like you, that, my story has not changed that perception. Okay, great. That, that, that uh -huh. tells, me to work, tells me to work on myself, right? So 
you know, I finally tell John, and I, because he wanted to make some stupid project. This is as I'm starting to become a filmmaker. And I had shot this thing with, um, uh, we were doing this film with Oscar Isaac and um, um, Paul Schrader, who did Taxi Driver, the writer, Last Temptation of Christ. He was partners with um, Raging Bull, partners with Martin Scorsese. So I had this first thing I DP. It was like, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And he's like, I really want to do this one project. And I was like, no, I was like, this is what you should do. We should do a documentary series about the consequences of violence, an eight-part series. And the best news is I own the rights to the pilot. And I give him this folder that's sitting behind me of these newspaper clippings, that a binder of the newspaper clippings from all the trial, from when my mother's missing, everything that somebody gave me. And I said, here, this is my life. And he calls me the next day and he goes, are you fucking out of your mind? Are you kidding? This is your story? Like, why didn't you tell me this? And I was like, well, it's like, I know, <laughs> you know, like we're friends. Like, I'm not really trying to be like that, but it really hit him. And he's like, I know somebody who'd be interested in this. I just did her first feature scripted film, but she's won two Academy Awards for documentaries. And her name is Barbara Koppel. And that's how the whole thing started. Everybody yeah. thinks that Barbara Koppel approached me. I created everything. And John, and it took, you know, it took like almost a, you know, 10 years, like eight years to put all this together. But in that time, so as I'm working as a filmmaker, and this is like 2014, my dad introduces me to this guy who is in the who works in the prison, but he also teaches at Ohio State, and he's a former cameraman from New York City. He's in the union, all this stuff. We become friends, and so my dad wants to introduce me to him because my dad. I'm telling my dad that I'm going to do this movie now. My dad thinks that I'm going to make a film to help him get out of prison. That's what he thinks. I never told him that. I never said that because I want to get his cooperation. But of course, I'm not going to say, "Well, no, Dad, I'm not doing that." I'm going to, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell your story. I didn't tell him right. that. So I didn't quell that. But I knew that's what he's thinking because he's a fucking narcissist, right? He's a psychopath. Yeah. So I, I would actually go into the prison when I would come back to Ohio. And, and they had a production facility in this prison because they would do all the work for the Department of the State of Ohio. I would go in there. I would teach the inmates how to use Final Cut Pro. I would I help them order their cameras on B&H. I taught them about green screen stuff. Oh I would teach them about, I, you know, I do animation. I'll do like, so I taught them a little bit about animation and Photoshop and web design, all this stuff. And like working with them, I was actually able to bring my DP reel in, in and show my dad, like stuff I did with Forrest Whitaker and Billy Ray Cyrus and Dion Warren, like all the stuff I was doing, right? It was really cool to be in there. And I've actually like, so I've been in the, like inside his prison, other than the film, like inside hanging out with him, no guards, no you know, normal, right? Yeah, yeah. Even snuck him in some cookies, some Christmas cookies, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, you know, just because I, like, look, he's a hor- he's a monster, but he's my father. And I still love him despite this. So when it came time, so I became friends with the warden. I had friends that I was shooting with motorcycle stunt riders in Ohio. So I got them in the prison to shoot. And then it was time for us to, we we'd gotten the money from Investigation Discovery. We were making the film. I said, you guys need to call the prison. I can't, I don't, I don't, like I've teed it all up for you. The table is set. You guys come in as producers and do that because I don't want to be seen as, you know, finagling this whole thing. On that day that the, war, the warden who I, had the, who I had the relationship with got fired, he got fired up. There's a new warden and wardens control the prison. And they said, I don't know who this guy is. No, no way, you're not coming in. She's like, well, I'm Barbara Koppel. But like, we don't care. Done. Yeah. Shut down. And they're freaking out. They're like, we've told, we've planted this whole thing around and we don't know what the scene's going to be with my father, but we've planned this whole thing around your father. And like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I'm like, look, I'm like, if one person more than me wants to make this, it's my dad. So I call him, so I tell my father and I, and I knew that he had worked for the former warden who was there. Um, he was her clerk and she left early and she started a recid- anti-recidivism movement and like, uh, a program for inmates to get out to get them a job and a life and a wonderful thing that she does. It's called Embark, I believe. 
Yeah. But she also has connections with the governor's office. So we were shut down by the Department of Prisons. And I said, okay. So I go back to Ohio for, I said, give me, I'm going back to Ohio for like two or three weeks. And I just do all my, my Hollywood stuff. And she can't meet with me. She gets injured on the last day that I'm there. But I talk to her and I, and I, and I say, this is what I'm doing. I want to show the positivity of the refor- reforms in the prison. And I went, because I said, you know, this will be a big come to Jesus moment with my father. And, you know, it'll be really good. And she goes, okay, I'm going to call the department, the head of the department of corrections and tell her that she needs to listen to you again. So I got another meeting with them and I recorded on a, I've got on a GoPro somewhere. This is the best pitch meeting of my life, Patrick. I sell it all. And honestly, like it was all the truth. Because I yeah. said, look, my father, I'm going to confront him. We'll talk. He'll he'll admit his guilt. It'll show how he's reformed. It'll be amazing for the state of Ohio. This is one of the most famous cases in Ohio history. The prodigal son returns with a film crew. We, we hug it out. It's this big, amazing come to Jesus moment. It's a, it, it's amazing. And they're like, uh, and I knew I had him. And then they call me like a, like after the weekend, this was the day that Trump got elected. And oh my God. So the day Trump gets elected and they call me in the morning, they go, call you. We're very pleased to tell you. That uh, you're that that you can film. We're we're gonna grant you permission. And I was like, motherfucker! Like they said no. <laughs> like this was like a massive part of the documentary, like us going into the prison. And yeah. my, my producers drop the ball. Like that's just the truth. And I yeah. call up Barbara and John on the phone. This is the morning after Trump's election, and I call them up and I'm like, guys, they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm like, what's going on? I just can't believe this. I'm like, fuck you, snap out of it. We got into the fucking prison. And they're like, what? what? I'm like, I'm like, fuck Donald Trump. <laughs> we got, we got into the prison, motherfuckers. Like I did it. Like we are in there, and that's that's how it all went. And so, so the interesting thing is, Barbara, as a, as a two time Oscar winning amazing filmmaker that she is, you know, we were talking about like, how are we going to do this scene, right? And I'm in LA and I booked a, a project to shoot out in Ohio a couple of weeks before so I could come and get myself orientated and whatnot. I said, uh, I have an idea. And I had tried to do this project with a writer from the television show, Castle. We were friends. Um, this was 2014. We actually made a short film called Facing Life. And I thought she was my friend. And we were going to sell this like, like as a scripted television show that we yeah. both co-created. And I had given her all of my father's letters so she could write the character of my father very authentically. And in that process, she, she mentions to me, she says, Collier, do you remember this letter that you wrote your father when you were like 13 asking him to con- like, just to confess so you can move on with your life? And I was like, I mean, sort of. I mean, she's like, well, he refused it and sent it back to you. And I was like, yeah, I kind of remember this. So I had never seen the letter before I opened it in the room that you, since I wrote it as a child, but when I on camera in Murder in Mansfield when I opened it. But we used it as our quote unquote hero letter or the, the idea of this letter in this short film that we did. And I said to Barbara and John, I said, you know what? And I had such anxiety because she totally locked me into a contract and it was almost like, oh, I couldn't make the documentary. She kind of screwed me over. And I didn't say anything to her about the doc and I was waiting for the, for the option to expire. And the option expired. And it was two days before I was leaving for Ohio. And I called her up and everything was good. And we were making the film. And I said, can I come get my father's letters? And I didn't think that she would respond to me. I left her or sent her an email. And she responded within 20 minutes. She's like, oh yeah, come by, come meet the baby, blah, 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 blah. Gave me all the letters, it was done. And so I said, I, when I arrived in Ohio, we were talking to Barbara and I said, look, I said, art often imitates life. But what if life imitates art? 
because I did this in a film, but this is the flip side of this. And I was like, I've never read this letter before, so I don't know what it says and since I read it as a child. What if I open this heart? It's like, here, here's the letter. You got you and John read it and you tell me what you think. And they came back, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is a great idea. Oh my God. That's how I, and that's how I do it. And did that scene go the way you thought it was going to go? Did you think your dad would actually open-heartedly admit to it? No. No. <laughs> I, thought, I, I, I didn't think it would go down exactly like it was. I was, hope, I was hopeful. I wanted him to. Because you see yeah. me pleading for him. And the thing is, is that on that day that we're filming in the prison, my producer, David Cassie, he was with Barbara and he's like, okay, so when we go there, we'll film your interview with your dad and then, and then we'll do the day in the life stuff. And I was like, no, no. This is how the day is going to go. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to drop you guys off at 5.30 in the morning. I'm going to go fuck off to a Starbucks or a Panera or whatever. And you're going to film everything you can with him, yep. with everything. And I'm going to be the last person. I'm going to sit eight, 10, I don't care how long. And you'll call me and then I'll come to the prison. We'll film me entering and then we'll go into the scene with him. Because if we do that first and there's this whole reaction, he could get up and leave. We could be done. We won't have anything. I was yep. like the smarter yep. play. I was like, I know this man. Like you don't. Yep. I know this man. You get everything first. And like, that's, a, that's brilliant. And ultimately it was a smart play because I would say that I am officially off the Department of Corrections holiday Christmas card list after that. <laughs> but the thing is, is that as you see in the film, and so when I come in, you see my father, he's very jovial. He's like, hey, Bump. And my, my nickname is yeah. Bumper. Hey, Bump, how are you? And we're talking about like, the weather or whatever. And I'm very smiley. And he's like in a good mood. And then I say to him, well, one of the things I've always been curious about, ever since you've murdered my mother, ever since you murdered my mother. And as soon as I say that, that's the first time I've ever said that to him. First time. Oh, and, wow. oh, and we're talking like hundreds of prisons of visits, phone calls, you know, messages, emails, you know, letters, 26 years at that point. I've never said that to him. And he, you can see it, it just changes. And that was the moment, and I've said this before, that I took back the power. Because I said, I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm here to hold your feet to the fire in front of the world. <laughs> like everything, Patrick, that I have done in my life since the moment that I woke up on December 31st, 1989 has led to this fucking moment, man. And I'm like, yeah. oh, like this is it. This is all, this is all the chips have been pushed into the middle of the table. I'm in, all in. What do you got? Because this is for her. This is for me. This is for my cousins. This is for my family. This is for, this is for everybody. And I'm going to give you the opportunity because everyone's going to see this and you're up for parole. So now the choice is in your, now it's your, in your hands. I don't mean to be pointing at you, but now nope. <laughs> the choice, like it, it's now, now it's, it's in your hands. What are you going to do, Pop? The table has been set. What are you going to do? You wanted an opportunity? Here you go. But I knew, and I got really, you know, I was frustrated. I, we were in there for an hour, and I just I remember my producer was like, okay, we're done. And Barbara, like, looked daggers at him, and I was like, no, no. But it was just the same repetition, and just, you see it. And it's just, you know, as I said in my TED Talk, hidden under the layers of narcissism and self-protection is just, you know, he's just completely incapable of admitting the truth. When confronted by and, it so blindly, and it's even like I ask him, like, you know, uh, what about the plastic bag? Oh, I put the plastic bag over her head. Oh my God. He bludgeoned her and suffocated her with a plastic bag. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, it's wild. And do you have any relationship with him now? Have you spoken to him since? So I only communicated with him during the pandemic, but I, I did email him. He turned 80 this year. I emailed him. He's emailed me back a couple of times. I haven't checked them yet. I'm going to in the next like week. 
And I do, I want to try to get him on my podcast is what I want to do. <laughs> but so yeah. because of money on his yeah. commentary, get him on the phone now that technology's changed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he probably wants to too. But uh, look, I mean, I was interviewed by, interviewed by the New York Times and the guy says to me, he goes, you know, there's three seconds in the film, Collier, that tell me everything that I need to know about you and who you are as a person. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you remember the part after all of this with your father and you get up and you hug him and you say, I love you, Pop. And he goes, I don't know anyone who would say that, let alone mean it. It's like, that tells me everything about your character, man, and that you are your mother's son. And the thing that you're seeing in that scene is you see all the pain and everything coming out. And this film, you know, I was like, it's, I'll talk about anything. Like, it's all out there. Like, I, because I knew that the only way that something like this works and that something like, I wanted to do this project because I wanted to, obviously, I wanted to honor my mother, put a button on this, like, after all this time. I wanted to tell her story. I wanted to heal myself, but I wanted to, to speak to that one kid who's in foster care, who's been abandoned, yeah. who's in the nadir of their life and tell them that they're going to be okay. You're going to make it. And in that moment, in those moments, you see me coming to the conclusion, finally, for the first time in my life, realizing I, am, I have nothing in common with this man. His blood may course my veins, but all of the stigma that's been placed on me for my entire life, like I'm not that person. I'm my mother's yeah. son. Well, no, you're going to end by making me cry, Collier Landry. <laughs> Listen, my friend, I love you so much. Thank you for this. Thank you for the film. Thank you for doing this interview. I'm so glad to have gotten to ask you these questions. I we All through our, the, the coverage that we did, I was like, I'm going to ask him this, and I'm going to ask him this. I had so many questions I was dying to know. We are going to see you at Obsessed Fest in October. Yes, you are. You're going to be repping your, both of your podcasts, Survivor Squad and Moving Past Trauma. And uh, I don't know. I hope this is just the beginning of a very long friendship. I hope so too, man. I, I, I have all the respect in the world for you guys. And I'm just, I'm so honored to be a part of Obsessed Fest. And, and we've, been, uh, we've been talking about it as much as we can. So looking forward to it. Well, back at you, my friend. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. We'll see you. Hey, fam. Thanks for listening to my interview with Collier Landry. You can find the documentary A Murder in Mansfield on Amazon, and you can subscribe to Collier's podcasts Moving Past Trauma and Survivor Squad wherever you're listening right now. And once again, both Collier and Tara will be joining us at Obsessed Fest in Dallas, which is happening from October 20th to the 22nd. They'll be doing a live taping of Survivor Squad. They're doing a Q&A and a meet and greet, and we're going to put them into a whole bunch of other silly shenanigans while they're there. So come hang out with us, fam. Get your tickets and info at ObsessedFest.com. All right, fam, we love you, and we will see you next week. Bye! Bye! 